This is WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. Buildings on air with Kiefer Dunn on Lumpen Radio. Welcome to episode 10 of Buildings on Air, the show where we talk about architecture and politics in Chicago and beyond. And uh, we've got a really great show lined up today. Um, first up, uh, for the first hour, we've got uh, Byron Sigjo. You might have to help me with the pronunciation. Yeah, that's right. All right, great, <laughs> yeah. And he'll be talking to us uh, about Pilsen Alliance and um, some of the things going on in that neighborhood and uh, anti-gentrification fights. Really excited about that. And then uh, in the 3 o'clock hour, uh, we'll be chatting with Sarah Rafson, um, who wrote up, who's, who's been on the show before, a friend of the show, and she's recently written up um, a kind of excellent little history of a group called Karyatids, which was a feminist architecture group uh, operating in Chicago in the 90s. So excited to hear more about that. And then we'll be uh, doing the mailbag, where we'll answer your listener questions about architecture. There's still time to get those in via Twitter. Um, our regular mailbag correspondents, Ann Louie and Craig Rashke of Future Firm, are out this week, but friend of the show, Skylar Moraine, <laughs> is uh, is filling in uh, nobly. So, um, without further ado, uh, Byron, how's it going? Good, good. Thank you, Kiefer. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for sh- showing up. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so so we met a few weeks ago at um, a DSA meeting, Democratic Socialists of America, and uh, you're sharing the work of Pilsen Alliance. So I'm hoping you can just introduce yourself, talk about Pilsen Alliance, and um, tell us what's good. Absolutely. Um, well, my, uh, I'm uh, uh, Byron Sigto, the director of the Pilsen Alliance, uh, grassroots organization is doing, um, have doing grassroots organizing on affordable housing, public education, environmental justice, uh, immigrant rights and workers' rights for almost 20 years. Awesome. Um, and uh, that's, a, that's a line of work and the mission that we continue to fulfill in the neighborhood and collaborating coalitions across the city as well. And that was, that was a pleasure to, to be in the South Side that day talking to um, the South Side DSA chapter in particular. And I think yeah. it was a, was a great conversation. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, um, it's funny, too, because this is something that architects talk about all the time, right, is what's going on um, in, in, in the cities, cities everywhere with the sort of gentrification issues. And um, the dynamics in Pilsen um, seem to be, like, especially, like, visible, Almost, and um, you know, one of the reasons why I'm extra excited to have you on the show is because for for a lot of architects, even though they think about this all the time and and are very critical of it, um, we're also sort of we're complicit in it in many ways, right? I mean, um, to my mind, architects are workers, right? So, and <laughs> a lot of in a lot of um, respects, we don't have a real a choice because because we have to work for uh, developers um, a lot of the time, um, but you know. The work that you guys have been doing, um, I think, really shows a way forward on like how how these fights can be won, and it makes them seem less abstract. I think that was some feedback at the meeting too. Was like, you know, a lot of this stuff just seems like an unstoppable, unmovable force that is just like raining down <laughs> on a neighborhood. But when but when you get into it and start doing the work. Um, um, it seems much more, um, I don't know, plausible that, that we'll win. And yeah. I think we'll win. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And, and, and uh, uh, interestingly enough, right, it was being, we have had a lot of conversations with architects, yeah. in fact, about these particular questions, you know. Um, we've had conversations with the Chicago Architecture Foundations, for yeah. instance, right? 
or the Hal Paseo, right, yeah. uh, will affect the neighborhood, right? And obviously, there's a there's a, a fine balance between um, sustainable development and inclusive development, and it's like a lot of conversations that in the room sometimes um, go on without being addressed. I mean, we. Sure tend to focus on the design, we tend to focus on particular questions, right? But we really have a holistic approach sure. of, you know, how the, the the project as a whole will affect a whole community, right. uh, the city in particular, right? So we have the, the PMG, 18th and Peoria lots, right? right? And there's a lot of talk about design. The developer came already, I think, with three designs trying to, and it's still not going right. anywhere, right? So there are particular things that, you know, well, it, let's talk beyond the design, right? right. Uh, the implications, the history, the, you know, what makes sense for for the neighborhood and what it makes sense for people in general, you know, to, to have this, uh, this project. So, and we have had even uh, now some Latino architects yes. that are coming and say, hey, listen, I have some ideas. I want to be an ally, right? I, right. I, I, I am from the neighborhood. I, I want to come. Well, and these conversations are not easy, but I think they are necessary. Right. right? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, maybe you can give us some examples of like or, or talk about the sort of fe feeling in the neighborhood uh, about these kinds of things. Like what, what's what's the chatter? What How, how do how do people in, in their day-to-day -day lives relate to these issues? You know, I think the the day-to-day -day is complicated. I mean, there's a lot of questions that go along, um, you know, the inevitability of gentrification, that there's change and you cannot stop change, and um, and also the racial tensions that go along with that, sure. right? I think that's what we see day-to-day -day from a coffee shop that gets, you know, you know, targeted to the other small businesses that also shuts down. Yeah. So there are real questions for real people, right? My my rent is doubling. I'm uh, being evicted. Five thousand evictions in the you know. So they're real, yeah. you know, things. But I think that how we shape these these conversations to talk beyond, you know, that the obvious, right? right. I think um, what we talk about. Well, this is not about you know keeping you know preservation is not keeping um, you know one particular group as taking ownership of a neighborhood that is sure. being immigrant, is being working class, right? right? But that very essence being at stake, yeah. that it should be part, you know, at the forefront of the discussion, right? The preservation meaning, okay, preserving the social fabric of the neighborhood. Right. And let's look at the history and how the least history should inform us, right? Of creating opportunities for everyone, <laughs> right? So for everyone who uh, sees the issue of affordability in a city that more and more uh, seems to be um, shutting down the doors for the more vulnerable, for the poor, for the and I will say even for the working class at this point. Yeah, right. And that was one of the things that I really appreciated uh, um, in our discussion at the DSA meeting was was you were you were really drawing this sort of thread that like uh, you know the forces here it's not like artists moving into the neighborhood right like from who 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 previously lived somewhere else or or uh, even like yuppies necessarily um although like those things c can be issues right. but um really it's a, it's a much bigger picture of like sort of like the f the financialization of real estate and uh the people who are who are um i don't know pushing that agenda um that seems to be like the root cause of the issue yeah and I think that's, that's important that we, you know, focus because it's easy to fall into those, the narrative, you know, I think the mm -hmm. current administration does a, you know, 
the 45th president that's <laughs> already done a great yeah. a job of like dividing and creating hate, you know, hate and confusion, right? Finding guinea pigs for whatever he needs right. to. So I think in that environment, I think it's important that we really highlight, right? Well, city pets, right? And that there are connections, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, but let's let's focus on those, right? right. So the latest, um, you know, whitewashing of the Castellan mural, right? right? Let's talk about that, but let's look at it in that, right? So yeah, so understanding the the the, his, the history on the building, the the meaning, the that's great. But let's look at even further, and you see a developer who is buying uh, community centers, is buying SROs, right? The single room occupancy yeah. across the city. Big donor, Ram Emanuel, right? And contractor of a firm that seems to think that uh, making Chicago great again is a good thing, right? <laughs> so if you if you put it all together we're starting to have a, a, a more in-depth conversation. Yeah. And I think as long as we have that conversation, right, that the social fabric of the neighborhood, it is a, a point that can be a unifying force. Yes. Let's bring together the people to fight these big developers that have a very particular ideology right. and are targeting a certain audience, yes. But let's have a way to address this issue in a way that we are giving people the information that we need to battle not only here in Pilsen but across the city because these yeah. are the same developers popping up and there are big developers. Right, yeah, that is, you, you mentioned that in the course of doing this work you get to know them by name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, and now I hope that more and more people say, hey, city pets, right? Oh, I know these guys in uptown, 130 right. people, this place. So, and I think that's the thing that are gonna, I mean, and we're talking some people from uh, Northside, um, Access for Justice and Wang Northside, I say, yeah, I mean, they're really tailoring to like the young professional did, but right. also they are being in the meetings and say, you know what, you know, I, I don't want to be part of that. <laughs> that that you know, they're, they're, they right. we know what the agenda is. Let's work together to make sure that their agenda, right, is not moving forward. If out of like or uh, inability to work together or inform people but as we inform people i think that they're we're gonna be more we will have more a lot more sympathizers yeah than what we think right yeah and and when you make the issue real for people like no one wants to be a displacer <laughs> like uh, at least most people i would hope uh i, I you know i believe in the goodness of people <laughs> and yeah so I, that that kind of education and 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 uh, giving people that kind of immediate history of like this is something that that uh, you know just happened and and these people were responsible. It just seems like uh, yeah effective. Um, yeah, and and so I, I'm also curious too about um, you know in build for in buildings on air on buildings on air on the show mm-hmm. we uh, are not afraid of getting into like nerdy technical details because <laughs> they're like really <laughs> so they're like really because it's really interesting and it's yeah, where yeah, yeah. like uh, you know a lot of the power lies yeah. in that sort of thing so um, so don't be afraid to get to get nerdy <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know how nerdy we can get yeah, you can get yeah immensely nerdy yeah, yeah. and I, I like you know because a lot of the you know oftentimes you know uh, the devil is in the details, right? right? These details <laughs> that often are underlooked. Oh, that's too technical. But you know, and let's make it make it accessible. Then, yeah. let's make it understandable for for, uh, exactly. for a wider audience. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So that that's part of the mission here, and um, and so I'm very curious about the kind of like zoning uh, yeah. issues, and and um, you know, I think we could probably both talk about, it, but maybe if you could give the listeners like a, an insight into how zoning process mm-hmm. works in Chicago, mm-hmm. and sort of the things that the Alderman is trying to do or has been pushed into doing, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, and, and how Pilsen Alliance sort of thinks about that. Because I, I, th- I think uh, the zoning seems to me, at least, to be the kind of like um, 
I don't know, the, the technical ground that um, all of these sorts of movements are built on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and zoning is, a, is, a, is an important issue. I mean, I know that like today, you know, there's a lot of people talking about how tax assessments are so, you know, disfavorable to the poor and the working people, right? Right. Uh, but let's talk about how zoning also <laughs> can be that, right? Yeah. Uh, I think that that's been going on for so long. I think it's so ridiculous that now you start hearing some politicians say, oh, this is bad. But it's just because it's got in those proportions. I think with zoning, I think you make it like in or alderman, right? In particular, seems to happen to be also the zoning chair. Right. Um, the the zoning process can be uh, a factor, like in uh, right now, for instance, the affordable requirement ordinance, right? Mm-hmm. Requires for any project, uh, any new project, right, where there's ten or more units, yeah, um, or that it needs a zoning chair, a zoning change. To have a hearing, right? right? And usually in those hearings, you can get a lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can get a lot of negotiations happening, like we're doing now with 18th and Peoria lots, right? With right. this developer that needs a zoning change, that is right now in, you know, it used to be uh, residential, yeah. Because in this, and I, I like to give examples so it goes a little bit more Please. clear. Um, so this this particular lot, where at some point we're gonna be residential, because the Jesuit order, right? The, this is the church, basically. Right. You say, well, we have a plan for affordable housing and our headquarters. And people say, well, that's great. We fast forward nine years later, and well, in that case, seven years later, and they say, you know what? I don't know if we can do this. We're going to have to sell it, right? Mm-hmm. And who the, who were buying it were some developers. Yeah. Now, the conversations originally, right, in 2015, well, but we want to buy it with the zoning, yeah. right? And that's when, when we found out this, we say, well, no, wait a minute, right? We want to talk about the kind of project that we don't want to put here. Um, so we started, you know, targeting the, you know, to get more information. Uh, they originally the intention was to, you know, and that's something that developers like is to have. Well, when I buy something, I rather have the right zoning yeah. because they know if I need a zoning change, that may be a problem. Right. right. Then I need to comply with an ARO of ten percent affordable at least, or if there's like in the case of Pilsen. 21% <laughs> affordable, uh, that yeah. may be a, a deal breaker. So in 2015, we started to have these this tough conversations. We went to the headquarters of the Jesuits. We told them, hey, you are not working for the community. We need to sit down. Uh-huh. Eventually, they say, well, they were in a negotiation. They said, but, well, the zoning is not part of this. The developer took the chance. Uh-huh. And at their surprise, right, they saw so many people worry about 500 luxury units, and the alderman found themselves yeah. in the predicament he ended up t- changing the zoning to make it industrial and give us an opportunity to wade in. And that's what the developer find himself themselves right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, how are we going to get out of this now? Right. <laughs> so that's what the zoning is so important, right? Unfortunately, right, uh, at this point, the zoning process has been so um, unfavorable to the regular people and right. so favorable towards developers that developers oftentimes that do this is pay to play. Oh, we're going to have donation to the alderman, donation to the chair, and we're going to have... a quote unquote objective hearing. Right. Right. So I think that's what we challenge. We think that at this point we know we, let's have these hearings. Yeah. Let's have this and let's talk about if this makes sense for communities or not. Right. You know, so and it's a tough conversation because there's a lot of political donations at stake. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it, it makes me think too, it's like, you know, mo- most of most of activism is showing up. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, just showing showing up to these meetings and and being like, hey, hey, I have a concern, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I imagine 
when when um, when when y'all are doing sort of community uh, organizing and building, you know, this is like a serious threat to the to the alderman and mm-hmm. and his reelection prospects. That's right. <laughs> and yeah. so you know that and and so that it seems like you you've you've got him on his heels, right? And and he and that's the surest way to counter, um, um, yeah, all of this donation money is with like yeah, good old fashioned people power. Yeah, <laughs> it's people literally people power yeah. against money power, right? And and be at the more the more that we're able to inform residents that this is not inevitable, that these are your, is your right to be at the meeting and have a hearing, and then you should say what you think is gonna help you as a taxpayer, yeah. help you as a resident, and help your community, or what you think is harmful, right? And I think. When they find themselves finding, like, you know, well, most people here do not feel very happy about 500 luxury units. Right. They have to think about changes. They have to, and I think that is gonna what is gonna help us as 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 a as a city. Yes. Because right? otherwise, we find ourselves, you know, like in Aptum and other communities, developers getting TIF money, extra right. subsidies. Oh, I was right. Just about to ask you about TIF money. You yeah. know, <laughs> tax subsidies, right? Uh, you know, write-offs and all this, or. Projects who have zero community benefit. I mean, luxury units are going to very, I mean, and that's for no one, right? These are private projects that, hey, if you are a private project, well, and you're so inclined on the market and all, well, let it be on your own. But to, you know, to believe and to pretend that this is going to be the free market, but then working with the government to make sure that you have everything on your favor, zoning. Subsidies, thief, everything. Right. That's greed. That's yeah. not. That's not. Let's and let's call it as it is. Right. Right. There's corruption, and that's that's not something we should allow because if it happens and it happens more and more often, with the results are that are. Cre- I mean, pills and ten thousand people displaced, five thousand evicted across the city. You know, uh, yeah. two hundred over two hundred fifty thousand African Americans left the city altogether. Right. Because you know, a CHA that sits on four hundred million dollars plus of public funds. Yes. You know, a, a state that bans rain control, even though mo- you know a lot of major cities with these problems have rain control right. ban. We cannot talk about development that is fair or whatever they call it. This is uh, an agenda that is carried by the super rich. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, so um, I, I'm curious too about this kind of. Uh, I think well, I think you put it be- really beautifully um, in the meeting when you're talking about TIF funds uh, and the way in which. Um, these sorts of things literally take money from the residents and then these then then the residents are displaced and they're not the people to benefit from it yeah. which i think is like it, it makes the, it puts a because that's goes counter to the entire logic in which tiff funds are like sold to people right yeah. in tiff districts and and because they end up being a kind of blank check to developers in many instances yeah. um you know sometimes they're great we just got you know new uh, new road and sidewalk outside <laughs> the studio here it's been it's been nice but you know that's a it's a drop in the bucket out of the neighborhood tiff fund compared to um i don't know if someone came in i'm I'm sure um they would have no problem securing a few hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah and it comes you know to that this advocacy thing right i mean i think how washington implemented tiff money right Mm -hmm. i mean that was the and the idea was to use public funding for blighted communities. I mean, and with blighted meaning communities that need development that are not getting it. So right. the idea was, obviously and then you see how ideas can be co-opted, right? right? right. And make it this, you know, this in notion, in theory, idea of like, well, let's use, you know, let's take from the rich to give it for the poor. Right. But now the definition of being blighted gets all of a sudden lost in translation. And then you see the Mayor Emanuel saying, well, blighted? Well, it seems like downtown <laughs> maybe needing some funds, right? Right. So I don't know what his definition of 
being blighted is. <laughs> yeah. But la last time, and that's always the joke, that last time we checked, downtown doesn't seem very blighted to us, right? Mm -hmm. And then, uh, but a lot of money is towards, you know, you know, tailoring to an agenda for tourism, for, you know, to bring resources. That. But but what is really done for the neighborhoods who really, truly need those funds, right? right. Uh, on how he's even consulted, right? I mean, right now, El Paseo in Pilsen, uh, $1.5 million in TIF money to develop yeah. the project. But then how we consulted the people, are we really telling, I mean, is this something that you want to see? How are you going to benefit it? You know, how are you going to be impacted, right? There's not yeah. this, like learning from the 606, right? Right. And then later, so, oh, you know what? We really didn't think this through, right? right. Well, of course, I mean, when you start have, you know, so many residents who've been yeah. telling you, I mean, I think there's got to be a level of accountability that we don't have yeah. today, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, This and these linear parks, so I'm from Atlanta originally, mm -hmm. and they have the Beltline down there. And the Beltline had some very progressive ideas, actually, when they were conceiving of the project about how to not displace residents mm -hmm. um, using variations on, on TIF money and TIF funding to actually like subsidize people's rent directly, which mm -hmm. was kind of cool. Mm -hmm. But they never did it. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and uh, <laughs> they never they never did it. And and um, by the time the project was underway, even when there were just drawings of it, already speculators were in there buying up the property and people were already getting displaced. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think whatever variations of those laws did get put in place were only after the fact. Yeah. And at which point, like, whatever, <laughs> yeah. who cares? And, and it led to actually the, the guy who conceived of the whole thing, mm -hmm. um, um, one of the grandfathers of the linear park as an idea, quitting, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I think talking about, like, rent control and, and doing these things in advance um, mm -hmm. is, is crucial. And so I'm curious, like, what the prospects are right now um, for, I don't know, making those moves. Like, how do we change zoning process? How do mm -hmm. we change the TIF laws? Um, and, and maybe that's, you know, not the fight right now. Mm -hmm. and, and we have to kind of build up to it. But I'm, I'm curious what you think. Um, and that's a great question. I, and I think that's what people, uh, I was like, well, what is like, the, you know, fighting one every single thing, <laughs> you know? But, you know, if you really look at the core of this, fighting these issues are educational campaigns, big mm -hmm. educational campaigns. And I think, for instance, I'll give you an example again, going back to PMG, yeah. a New York developer. Had no idea how this works, <laughs> right? I mean, we've seen in his um, quote-unquote community hearings that were completely, you know, dominated by the community telling him, no, yeah. the design as good as fancy, whatever, it just doesn't belong here. He still comes out with service saying, no, mm -hmm. it does, you want it, even though that wasn't true. But, you know, but also like the, the, what they were saying, it was very interesting because he's saying, well, you see, by us paying more taxes by this new revenue or by these condos, right? Mm -hmm. We're really contributing to the TIF. So it goes back to the TIF and say, well, a million dollars, you know, a year on TIF that, you know, but there's, you know, the importance of being rooted and understanding of what and how historically this has been working or how it's currently working, right? Right. And he said, well, wouldn't it be great you have a million dollars for the community to work on this project? Yeah, the problem is that that million dollars will never make it to go <laughs> to the neighborhood. Right. right. Second, right, is like, are we having a conversation about how this thief process works in general, right? So just having more and more conversations about these this processes and how they were zoning, right? Right. So, well, and people think, well, wait a minute, how did, this, how did we get the opportunity to challenge this? On why we don't have the opportunity to challenge the Casas Clan, for instance, right? Because, right? well, because they got the zoning already, right? right? So people are saying, well, shouldn't we have a zoning hearing for every single project? <laughs> and the answer is yes, yeah. we should. Because, you know, even in the Pilsen land, you know, in our 
mandate that we yeah. have done with different groups is that well 21 affordable you know because 21 percent affordable because we have issues right. and it's supposed to be for all developments yeah right how do we enforce it how do we make it happen i do think it's something and then the rent control um thing just to end right the 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 coalition right to having the ability to leave the ban is not even rent control is having the ability uh-huh. to constitutionally have democracy yeah. right so that we can choose and then suddenly so later they will tell you well you see in 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 san francisco in new york it doesn't you know it didn't work well and then say well you see it's not going to work here because by the time that you're going to do it it's going to be too late yeah. we need it now we need it to rent rent the stabilization because we know what's happening right now right right so and that's why we got to keep pushing the narrative to make sure that it it happens when it has to happen right you know yeah makes sense yeah and so does that involve um uh, getting people elected to city council, like um, you know, uh, how uh, like these kinds of bigger structural frameworks. Mm-hmm. Like how how do we change the? How do we start to like? What are the tactics for 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 starting to influence them? Um, mm-hmm. is, does that does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that obviously for those of us who do community organizing, yeah. uh, issues right issues drive campaigns issues drive you know what decision makers do right but ultimately if those decision makers are tone deaf right yes. if they really are in the pockets of the developers it's really hard for us to move forward so any campaign any they needs to have or rep- that's what they are or representatives right right but if city council is okay with giving TIF money to a developer in naptown but it starts like using hosts to displace the the tent city. Yeah. I mean we really need to think about what that means, right? It's lapping the face to say, well, there's public money from the rich the rich developer, but then you're not even allowing people to even have a tent. Right. Right? Which is disgusting, right? But you know, so I think that um those conversations need to happen not only at the community level, they need to happen City Council, the Springfield, with people who truly represent us. So yeah, at some point, right, there's got to be a reshape, you know, a reshape, a right. rechange, a complete uh, revolution, right, <laughs> within our government institutions as well. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense, and and certainly, you know, the the kind of more me- immediate fights help help one build to that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's you because when you when you uh, my question was kind of unfair. It's like, how do you change everything? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, so, and and you do it by by one step at a time. It, it, right? it takes time, and these are global trends, but these are national. Trends too, right? right. So it's complex, but we should not take this as inevitable. Inevitable, or there's right. nothing. Oh, this is development. This is great. No, well, let's ask this: Is this a natural trend, or how does it work, yes. right? Yeah. And how can we reshape it? And I think that people have a lot of power. People power is real, is effective. Yeah. So at the extent that we can continue putting the dots together locally, you know, yeah, gl- hopefully regionally and at some point nationally and globally, you know. Yeah. So changing the trends takes time. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one one last question, then we're going to go to a break for just a couple minutes. Um, I'm I'm curious, like uh, about you. Met, you talked about SROs, yeah. And so can, I know that you, you've done some pretty interesting activism around SROs in Pilsen. I'm wondering if you just give us give us a preview. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, single room occupancy um, buildings are disappearing unfortunately mm. in the city right they're being decaying you know because of developers like city pets right, right. <laughs> who are targeting these or, or there was there's an sro ordinance right that um the the idea was to protect these buildings because these are these are residences for veterans for people with disabilities for people for the more poor people who right. who are not able to afford the new development that is two thousand dollar rents and you know the, and all the new developments so it's crucial to protect these key basic safety guards for our most vulnerable residents, right? right? So 
in Pilsen, this amazingly enough, CD Pets, right? The same uh, um, developer who bought Desaro in Uptown, 130 residents right now at risk of being displaced. Uh-huh. That later are going to be in likely in Tent City, yeah. having been subject of persecution, harassment, and all that for being displaced from the get go when we're, they we're trying to protect them. Now, in Pilsen, you know, we had an SRO, one SRO, 52 residents uh-huh. at risk. City Pats were going to buy that. Yeah. So what we did, organize the tenants, make sure that they know their options. We took him to CHA. We took him, every, we put all the men, you know, on organizations who are supposed to have resources for this on blast. Yeah. In three weeks, there was a million dollars to buy the <laughs> building and we are so lucky that yeah. this city, otherwise we have another city path yeah. development in Pilsen. So this silence organizing by the tenants, they have a lot of merit, you know, come testify, push back, right? But we do need organizing to know our rights, know what we can do and find the funding that is there. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good place to take a break. We'll be back with Byron in just a couple minutes. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn. We're still here with Byron uh, Sikcho of Pilsen Alliance, talking about gentrification and other issues um, in in uh, Pilsen and beyond. Um, we're just listening to those advertisements, too, for Croatian sausage, and now I'm really hungry. <laughs> but also, you know, the podcast folks won't get that. So, um, you know, listen <laughs> listen live, <laughs> and you get to hear, you get to become hungry yourself. Um <laughs> Yeah, so uh, you, we were just talking about SROs um, and, and some of the activism that's been done there and, and the, this kind of um, displacement that's happened all over the city. And, and it's, I don't know, it's um, it's really tragic to hear about, but then it's it's so inspiring to, he- like, you know, have an example of a successful fight back or at least one where concessions were made. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, tenant, tenant organizing is a very particular thing, right? Like, um, so I'm wondering if you can talk about that because you know, my background's more in, like, um, labor organizing mm-hmm. um, um, and, and other kinds of activism. So, like... How does tenant organizing start? Like, how how do you find uh, th- how do you find residents, who, and how do you like identify leaders? And and I'm wondering if you could t- talk about that sort of thing. Absolutely, and I uh, and I tell you, like, even when we have this um, this fight with this RO, right? We have these tenants will come in, and that was a learning experience, you yeah. know, for us too, uh, because we do community organizing and tenant organizing is its own thing, right? There's right. great organizations like the Autonomous Tenants Union and uh, ATU, and then you have uh, MTO, right? And uh-huh. some people who really focus focus on this as like a an organizing model, right? Sure. So for us we had to learn, you know, okay, how do we how do we empower the tenants to know? Because sometimes a lot of tenants say, you know what is gone, I just gotta pick up and leave. You mm. know, I mean there's nothing I can do. They gave me the 30 day notice. They told us like even the SRO, this is over with, there's nothing you can do. Right. Right. And there's a lot of people who do see that as the end of it. Uh, but there are the leaders of the people who wanna see be hey listen Maybe there's something I can do. I've been living here yeah. for 20, 30 years. Maybe I should look into this, right? And that's our responsibility for us as an organization as well. Let us also look <laughs> into this. So we'll sure. learn a lot about the SRO ordinance, right? One North Side being one of the leading organizations that put together the ordinance itself, yeah. right? So learning about, well, you can, you know, or there's a foreclosed building. So every situation is so different, right? So you may have some real um, rights that are tangible. Like mm-hmm. if it's an SRO, if it's a, it's a foreclosure building, you are entitled to relocation funds. And these are no you know, pennies. We're talking about 
ten thousand right. dollars in 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 fees for these developers or these um, or the landlords maybe they're in foreclosure, right? Yeah. So how do we make it tangible for the residents? What are we fighting for, right? I mean, we're fighting yes, you know, but is it really the relocation? Like this fight was very telling for us because it's like we have one point that so we're fighting for relocation or we're fighting to stay right yeah so sometimes unfortunately our laws you know on eviction they're very draconian right yeah they give you a 30-day notice the landlord has everything on the side right uh the developer has to have everything on their side uh but we also work with like lawyers right the, like talking about allies right we have like sure. architects are allies so open our ears and our eyes to hey maybe there are allies here the lawyers committee for better housing have provided great legal support for these right. cases and then when you have lawyers you have community organizations you have like a coalition yeah. then you start seeing these concessions so i right. think it takes a village a that takes a co large coalition and for tenants to really start believing uh, and giving informed hey, this is the information this is what we really can do yeah i think we really i mean at one point i think we organized in this sro about 25 of them but maybe only three or four were vocal but that's right. all we needed right yeah it's interesting you know to talk about sort of like helping um in, in collaboration with with the community shaping a vision Right for for a, 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 a world and a, a, a moment where these things aren't happening, um, and and what is possible, and uh, you know it, it it makes me think about the the flip side of it, which is the the visionary things that are presented from the developers who are mm -hmm. pushing this. So you know, and and this is something that that intersects directly with architecture work, where you see all of these renderings, right? Like very slick, beautiful renderings, and like you know the developers um, the. the they, they promise so much mm -hmm. and um, you know you suspect that such like uh, very little of it will actually come to pass mm -hmm. um, and and so like they they know how to craft their their own vision and I think it's interesting that you know when when there is a fight back you know there's the, the we've, we've been chatting a little bit tangentially about community benefits agreements yeah. but this has sort of become in addition to kind of the slick images and like you know this is this is like something new and shiny and and the future um uh you know how are how are they trying to um present community benefits agreements mm -hmm. um what are the the pros of that what are the cons of that what are the pitfalls mm -hmm. like um yeah talk talk more about that absolutely i mean and they're like and i think there's uh, many differences i think like uh, oftentimes i think the problem is when we generalize every mm. community benefits agreement is great or every and it's very different right it's different like in the biomedical library it's sure. a lot different when you because this in a way these are like public funds yeah right? it's so institutional it's institutional and, yeah and, and that looks different right when, when you're trying to have a community benefits agreement with pmg for say right sure uh, which is not our goal at all yeah. but you know if you will want to do um some sort of tangible right uh way of bringing benefits to the community not only costs because that's for instance even in the Obama library the conversations i mean the little that we've seen is that well you're gonna bring all this massive investment here that in theory looks great right mm -hmm. but when neighborhoods that are like pilsen are already being gentrified that when people are yeah. being displaced by the thousands right what is the fact so people need to think about well how is the revenue how this development is gonna help the current residents and not sure. only the future residents right. who perhaps are able to benefit from these amenities so and i think the concept of community benefit agreement I think is along those lines of thinking of benefits to the people who real are in real need of tax subsidies or tax right. you know tax exemptions the people who really are struggling to make ends meet and perhaps this amenity what it does not only um, to bring some benefits as a group it could 
being benefits, right? I mean, yeah. who doesn't want a library, right? <laughs> who doesn't want a bypass, sure. a green space, right? But when that is that comes with higher taxes, that comes with a higher assessment on your property, yeah. and you're already like strangled by the taxes, the implications can be like, oh, the 606, right? Everybody's, oh, this is a great project, but ended up changing completely the neighborhood, right? right? And the people who paid for them, yeah. the people who pay with their own taxes, right. are not able to enjoy them today. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. It seems like there's some good policy that's been put in place. But as we were talking about, a little um, uh, too little too late, but uh, certainly a template for the places where it's not too little too late, the kind of um, 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 additional taxes um, uh, and fees for um, removing units, combining units, uh, to, for example, taking a three-flat down to a single-family home, or um, doing teardowns for a smaller yeah. new construction seem like really interesting policies. And I, I'm also, um, um, while I'm on the subject of policy and, and, and nerd stuff, maybe this is a question for our, our uh, uh, allies who are lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> but with these community benefits agreements, um, like who who is the contractual relationship between and like how binding is it? Is it something that is between just the developer who, who owns the building I, I maybe it varies, but yeah. I, I'm yeah. And it's very interesting, right? I think that and it gets very political, right? Yeah. I mean, and what groups are part of it and what groups are not part of it, what yeah. becomes binding and what is just a promise, right? Yeah. So and I think that's when it becomes super political because obviously the city has a lot more um, power and institutional power sure. to make the developers' lives very difficult, <laughs> right. right? And to get real benefits. Yeah. So how they use their institutional uh, power to, you know, to empower the residents to real get benefits back, or they use it for themselves. And I think that's what's been happening for, you know. So you see these benefits agreements, quote unquote, sure. ended up in particular organizations, yeah, or ended up in particular campaign funds, right? I see. And I think that's what the danger is, right? That yeah. you push people, and that's what I think the caution should be right community benefits agreements need to be transparent and it needs to incorporate even the people that the city doesn't want to hear right uh, we've seen that in many many um, instances where it was successful like um, when the coal plants in Pilsen were shut down mm -hmm. they were in a way without having um, a super complicated document that is like community benefits agreement but there was a task force where their documents and they were like there were accountability on the coal plant saying, hey, you need to get back <laughs> to right. the community that you basically harmed for so long, right? Yeah. In And how do, that looks like, right? And the city had no choice but to incorporate Pilsen Lines, which they are, you know, quite frankly, a really dislike sure. entity within the city yeah. because we will push the envelope to make sure that the benefits go as far as we can because when you talk about asthma rates, you know, going up, cancer rates, going up. Right. they have some real real restitutions to be made. And I think the same that you can make for like developers who are coming and profiting completely from the neighborhood, right? Yeah. But we've seen, unfortunately, that the caution with this is with the community benefits agreement get really the behind doors with very few mm. people in the room. Yeah. And we have missed opportunities, right? We have developers who say, you know what? You know, this is, I know what is happening here. Uh, in Pilsen, 21st and Laughlin, we had an opportunity to develop when we felt the pressure. 
we're going to give a, a lot worth a million dollars back to the community. Yeah. But where the lot ended up is when we were thinking this can be a land trust opportunity, yeah. ends up going back to CPS with no discussion, no plan, nothing, right? right? Just to make some people look good, I guess. You know, sure. but, but it really, there's missed opportunities here. So that's the danger with community benefits agreements. If they're not transparent, if they're not inclusive, it really supposed to be a binding agreements that are in writing with many actors in the community right. that people can see. But right. unfortunately, that has not been the case. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, it's interesting too, because I think um, this idea of having a, a community organization like actually, actually like written into a contract, like it seems um, like almost unobvious. And, and I think also um, a lot of groups, especially less institutionalized groups, like are, are unwilling to take that on. It seems like a, a lot of times like activists are actually kind of afraid of power. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, but, but when, when that happens, then you have like a, a real like um, pinch point and, a, and a, a PowerPoint where you can like PowerPoint. That's like, thinking about slides now but yeah like but you have a you have a you have a place where you can kind of like exercise some some real control and agency that's that's beyond sort of like um getting a ton of people out because then you can get a ton of people out but then you also can point to some words on on some paper absolutely and and that's that's important right to give people concrete things yeah. right i mean what we're fighting for this pmg development for instance mm. was proposing say well we cannot do the 21%, which is a mandate, right? This right. is like the, the things that we concretely, yeah. and that can be, that's a way of a community benefits agreement per yeah. se. But he say, the developer was saying, but you know what? We're going to meet maybe 10 on site and the other 20, they went to 11%. Yeah. We'll see how we get at some point. Yeah. You know, so this is the kind of things that you want, you know, if they're going to happen, right? Yeah. There's got to be accountability and, and that's what the law is important, understanding what they're saying, right? And this is say, well, but who you own, who's going to own these units, right? Yeah. How are you going to make it, you know, for the, is that a good idea? I mean, these questions need to be asked. Right. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is like these empty promises being approved. Yeah. Behind doors, without questions, without, you know, and all of a sudden said, well, listen, wait a second, what happened here? Yeah. And then, you know, fast forward like five, ten years, they said, oh, you know what, that was a bad idea. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think the 606 is, is a cautionary tale. Today we're talking about the, uh, we talk about these demolition fees, we're talking about uh -huh. other stuff, tax appeals, tax freezes. And I was, you know, we're working now even with the Transportation's, uh, Transportation Alliance, yeah. who just recently came forward and supported the, yeah. you know, as a coalition that's worked with the city in some projects and say, you know what, this makes sense. And we asked him recently, well, does it make sense for Paseo too? Yeah. Right? And do it early, do it. And there's, there's a ways that we can put in writing to yeah. make sure that it's not a, well, we think about it. That's a good recommendation and they're great recommendations, but right. how many of them are put into policy that is enforced and over, you yeah. know, with this real oversight? Yeah. So and to pivot just a, a little bit, um, you know, the, the, the big development projects uh, um, that come through, you know, they, they make a giant splash, but then I'm, I'm also thinking now about like, um, you know, the moving, moving into, you know, a three flat in the neighborhood and like mm -hmm. how those like, and you do see lots of like new, um, um, uh, buildings going up on single lots in Pilsen. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, I'm, I'm thinking about like the character of the buildings yeah. and you talked about the kind of character of the neighborhood and the social fabric, preserving the social fabric. And so, 
I think a lot of um, what draws new residents to Pilsen is is the kind of culture, right? Yeah. And there's there's some like real danger there in, in terms of like um, sort of like like tokenization and and uh, appropriation and, and all sorts of things. I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, I think like everybody who will tell you, oh, beautiful Pilsen. We all, I mean, a lot of people want you know want right. to be part of the community, which is great, right? Yeah. But at the same time, these these um, these policies, right? These uh, these new development, these new uh, influx of like a very aggressive, you know, wave of development that is like, well, we're going to buy this lot and then we're going to turn this house and then we're going to make a six flat, right? right. Um, I think, and if that's the case, that's the kind of thing we're going back about zoning, right? Right. I mean, we have aldermen like Carlos Rosa in the 30 field where say, you know, yeah. we're going to downzone every project, right? So we can have a discussion, right? Yeah. So this is the kind of thing that we know that we can do, right? So what, yeah. why don't we do that? Okay, and let's discuss project by project. And yes, it is a titanic task. But it's a task that will put at the forefront this right. kind of discussion where are we really talking about preservation? Mm. And then when we are, then let's talk about project by project. And we've seen residents. I mean, recently there was a, a on Sir Mac and Polina, there was a group of residents, you know, there was a proposal for 24 units. And they say, well, they had obviously, unfortunately, it's because it's like these 10 units, yeah. you know, requirement that they need to have a hearing. Right. And they negotiated down to 12. You know, they say, you know what? We don't want those 24. Right. We're going to have 12, yeah. right? And these kind of conversations, right, where residents have a real input, yeah. right, I think will create a balance because participation, and I think when you have more people in the room and more more ideas, it's always going to be a benefit. I, I think the position, and you always got to wonder, where people don't want too many people in the room, right. there's a problem. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it makes sense. And, you know, the, the downzoning thing is interesting um, because uh, I don't know if you've seen the news in, in Bridgeport about the alderman. Uh, uh, downzoning on Halstead, mm. and it's motivated by a totally neg- like well, what I think is an as a as a questionable set of concerns, right? So um, basically, you know, there's some coded language about um, um, well, we don't want any nail nail salons uh, and massage parlors and and tattoo shops like on on Halstead Street. People want a place where they can get a sandwich, <laughs> and you're like, well, I I mean, I, I'll never turn down a sandwich, <laughs> but like, but like he 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 downzoned. Uh, uh, unilaterally and um, uh, or tried to anyway. I think it's still in process, but like it, it was really to preserve like a kind of uh, neighborhood characteristic that like um, I don't know. I mean, we know the history. We know the history of Bridgeport, right? It, it's it's kind of like uh, um, um, to it was it was. Uh, uh, a tactic of exclusion yeah. um, in, a, in a negative sense, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I, uh, but it's, it's you know, what it does do always is uh, now that if, if the downzoning is successful, it gives people a chance to go into some meetings, right? Right, right. And they've had closed door meetings and it's, a, it's, it's, it's going to be an issue. And, and um, so, so yeah, it's kind of a roll of the dice, I guess, on, on his part. Um, yeah. And, and I think you're right. I mean, there's sometimes you have this idea of down zone and I've seen also criticisms of because of yeah. that, because the motivations, right? right? But I tell you, I have a friend who lives in, 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 in particularly in Halstead, right? Yeah. And around 21st and Halstead. And he would love to have an opportunity. I think there's a, br- a brand new development where he had sure. no set. So where yeah. he, you know, they built a thing like two inches yeah. away from his property, right? I think like, you know, it, it, this 
these are kind of things that, at the very least, right? Sure. It won't be perfect solutions, but at least there is at least some sense of democracy here. Absolutely. You're being consulted on how your tax dollars are used, what kind of thing that you want to see, what kind of businesses, what kind of right. uh, projects that you think are benefit to you as a taxpayer and yeah. a resident of the community. Yeah, absolutely. And you, and you see it, right? Because even like the second that news article dropped, you know, people started talking about it in the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and and and, uh, and and I think um, actually I know producer Jamie on, on his show. You guys had a, a long conversation with uh, Steve Badowskis about the kind of history of the neighborhood and talking about Halstead on was it Radio Free Bridgeport. Yeah, on Tuesday, yeah. Steve was in talking about uh, Bridge uh, Bridgeport in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies. Yeah, it was a really it was a really interesting uh, show to listen to um, to t- talk about some of like what what the neighborhood used to look like back then. What was interesting to me about that was. First of all, his joke about that seemed there'd be a lot of shoe stores in Bridgeport <laughs> in, in 1970, since that was all he could remember. A lot of things, um, one of the things that Bridgeport has lost in the number of years since um, Steve was born and, and in the 20 years certainly that I've lived here, we've lost a lot of neighborhood meeting places. You know, we've lost mm. a lot of small taverns and small mm. restaurants. Uh, you know, taverns uh, were a big part of the fabric of this neighborhood because there were so many immigrant groups, Lithuanians, mm. Croatians. Uh, and, you know, now today it is it is a very, I believe statistically this is the most diverse ward, but we don't necessarily have the same kind of public meeting places that we used to. There used to be a little bar or something like on every corner and people would make it their own. There were also a lot more restaurants. So mm. to, yeah. your, to your point about what Pat Thompson's trying to do, I do have some sympathy of the idea of trying to get more restaurants and public meeting places yeah, in it. Sure. And just to give a little context, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you, but the past Alderman Balser led a lot of massage parlors and nail salons that were basically fronts for prostitution. Sure, right. Archer, so. which, which is so, uh, certainly know. bad. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I you know, I think that you know, in a sense, um, when he's saying that, well, I'm not entirely disagreeing with you. When he says that, though. In a lot of longtime residents' minds, we're like, well, Jindy Massage was right across from the train station, and we'd walk by there every day when we're trying to get to work, and we're like, you know, what is going on there? I personally would much rather have the tattoo parlor that is there. Yes. That's a a going business, and Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm obviously – this is radio, so you cannot see me, but I'm obviously (laughs) heavily tattooed, and I think it's a respectable and and well-represented art form, and, you know – but the idea that, that we need to have more public meeting spaces in Bridgeport is one that I support. And Pilsen, of course, has a lot of them. Yeah, uh, yeah. Cafe Jumping Bean to, to a lot of places. And, of course, they've also lost some. Yep. You know, Casa yep. Astalon was, was yep. a meeting place. Mm. So I think that, you know, uh, the idea of having those spaces and what, what Steve talked about, and I think the undercurrent was when he was a kid, there were a lot of places where people could go and just meet other residents in the neighborhood. And we've, we have lost that in this neighborhood, and we're right. trying to get it back now. And I think that's, that's a positive thing. But um, it is also important to note the history of Bridgeport was virulently racist, white mm. first. The last lynching, I believe, in the United States actually took place, I believe, in Bridgeport. Um, and we have a history of excluding people from Pilsen and Bronzeville and Englewood and other places. And, you know, the, the good thing, just not to go too long-winded here, but the good thing is that that's changed. This is now a community where people – there are some people who are never going to accept whatever, but yeah. that's fine – a lot of people are now accepting of a, a big youth movement coming in and, and all different uh, types of people have moved to the neighborhood. Yeah. And it's wonderful. Yeah, I think it's a really good, like, uh, that's a, these kinds of spaces that you're describing, like, are the... Um, the, the built uh, sort of fabric of the social fabric that you're describing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think, um, you know, when we were talking about 
developers, right? It's a different thing from development necessarily. Yeah. So, like, I'm I'm curious what kind of development um, you you would like to see in in Pilsen. Um, like, what what um, what could happen? What what new buildings could go up that you that would be a, a benefit? Um, maybe separate from some of these logics that we've been talking about. Absolutely, and I think that what like was said before, you know, like there's a lot of community spaces that Pilsen has lost as yeah. this new wave comes in, right? And I think this add the social fact. I mean, talk about you know even Talia Hall, right? Sure. That was you know even for the Czech community as an immigrant community a social endeavor. You know where you have a theater, you have you still have some the Apple Building in front of the the Jumping Bean, another yeah. venue for social gatherings, right? We don't have a lot after the loss of Casa Slam, We don't have that. Sure. And people and the developers don't even even talk about this anymore. Yeah. They don't talk about well, what's the need of people to actually meet other people and actually have you know meaningful conversations? That aside, you know, from uh, you know just wandering around in the restaurant, which is great, right? Have restaurants and coffee places that have been uh, uh, they have been built over time, and that's right. great. Let's talk about now uh, community spaces where we can actually have now these you know conversations continue right yeah so now there's a struggle for instance if you want to have a meeting where well now there's no place other than the library now right right Casa Slan used to be one the Apple so let's talk about those kind of development as well because these are anchors of the community right sure. like as I was discussed you know we have like you have your your tavern you have the little spaces where you meet discuss these issues are very political right there there are places that are very political right but I think there's a way also to um, to start this all this uh, mingling right of people that we need right sure. we need people coming together to discuss these things and development doesn't have time for that right. is you know build baby built and then we worry about that later but we need to worry about that now yes you know and I think that's at the core I'm like we have a, this conversation just right now right hey maybe there's a there's a tattoo shop that makes more sense yeah other, and when you have that conversation you will see that the residents have a lot more information yeah. than the developer in New York who barely got here right you know? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we are running up on time. Uh, Byron, it's been fantastic. I understand that uh, actually we, we record out of the co-prosperity sphere here in Bridgeport, Lumpen Radio, and uh, I understand you guys have an event coming up here. Maybe yes. you can give us some more information on that and more information about um, uh, Pilsen Alliance or where to find more information, rather. Yeah, yeah uh, uh, actually, uh, Punk Rock and Donuts is, uh, you know, is hosting the, the event. I think it's uh, August 18th um, yeah. at 6 p.m., I believe, and it's a... Uh, uh, a prosperous sphere. I think I hope that that you join us. I think is a, is a benefit to continue working on immigration. Immigration, as you know, has become another unfortunate um, issue, right? Where yeah. uh, you know we need to we need to start coming together, understanding what is the the fabric uh, as a nation, right? It's an immigrant yeah. nation, and I think that's an important thing to to support. Yeah, excellent. Thank you so much for joining Buildings on Air. We're going to take a little bit of a break, and we'll be back with Sarah Rafson after that. And just one piece of thing, if you guys want more information on Punk Rock and Donuts, there is an invite up on the Co-Prosperity Spheres Facebook page. Uh, you can find all the information, including times, the artists. A lot of artists have donated their time to that. Yes, yes. Uh, we are expecting uh, quite a sizable crowd. So uh, you may wish to uh, you may wish to arrive early at the Co-Prosperity <laughs> Sphere. And you can see me tearing my hair out. So. <laughs> and the thank tattoos you. that you didn't see on the radio. That's right. <laughs> thank all you. Right. Thank you so much. And thank you for hosting that party. Thank you. <laughs> This is WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, and we're back with Buildings on Air. And uh, we're joined uh, via Skype with Sarah Rafson, friend of the show, second-time guest. How's it going? It's going great, Kiefer. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so, Sarah, for, for those who might not remember, maybe you can uh, give yourself a little introduction. 
No problem. So um, I am an architecture writer, researcher, and curator, and um, I just founded in 2016 a, an editorial and curatorial agency called Pointline Projects. So I do books and exhibitions about architecture. And um, we like to focus especially on, you know, underrepresented voices and marginalized stories in the discipline. So um, I think the last time we talked, we were talking about feminist activism mm -hmm. and especially the Women's March, which was really cool. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and this... This time, yeah, <laughs> we're talking about um, uh, some research that you just did um, on uh, karyatids, um, and you wrote it up for the Chicago Architecture Biennial blog. So, uh, yeah, maybe maybe you can tell us um, who karyatids were and uh, how you stumbled into doing this research and, and writing this piece. Yeah, no, I, I actually love talking about this. It was actually, it, this research came out of the thesis I did for graduates, my graduate program at Columbia. Um, I did a program that's pretty new. It's called Curatorial, uh, Critical Curatorial and Conceptual Practices. And with such an open new format for a master's degree, I was um, really struggling to figure out how uh, to shape my thesis, and I knew I, I would just sort of had a feminist uh, revelation. I just sort of un discovered feminism for myself yeah. um, that year, and I knew that I wanted to deal with something related to the topic uh, when I understood how it could uh, integrate with architecture. Um, but honestly, it was pretty serendipitous that I found out about the karyatids in the first place. Uh, I remember distinctly the moment when I found out about them. I had heard about the International Archive of Women in Architecture uh -huh. and that they had a scholarship available for people who wanted to do research related to one of their collections. Hmm. So it was late at night, one summer night before um, my thesis year was starting. Uh, I think our perspectives were due yeah. soon. And <laughs> I was scrolling through this the collections listings at this IAWA at Virginia Tech. And, you know, I considered doing something about Zaha Hadid, something about Lena Bobardi, but I had wanted to take a more, uh, I, I found myself being more interested by activism. And when I was scrolling through and saw the words chicks in architecture refuse to yield, which is what <laughs> yeah. uh, sort of forms the first part of the acronym karyatids, I was really struck. I mean, just the that kind of language. I had really never heard anything like that in our discipline, and it really resonated with me. So I did some Google searching, found a couple of Chicago Tribune articles about the group that started in 1993, um, but really not much more about them. So I thought, this is something that I'm going to take upon myself to dig into. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was how I got into it. But <laughs> what I what I found just to to keep going. Yeah, on please. It, um, was that the Karyatids were a group of approximately 70 or 80 uh, architects and designers, both genders, both men and women, uh, but they had three figureheads. They were three young architects, uh, Carol Crandall, Sally Levine, and Kay Janis. And their group, Karyatids, it stands for Chicks in Architecture Refuse to Yield to atavistic thinking in design and society. <laughs> <It's> so good. <laughs> so good. Uh, that was the group that they founded basically for one reason only, which was to tell the AIA their 
or expressed to the AIA their rage, frustration, um, and s struggles that they faced as women in architecture. Um, they organized around a specific event, which was the fact that in 1993, Chicago hosted the largest gathering of architects ever because it was hosting the joint convention of both the AIA, the mm -hmm. American Institute of Architects, and the UIA, the... Uh, IUA, it's, IUA, but it's French, so it switches around. Yeah, <laughs> International Union of Architects. Yeah. So um, because of the two combining, I, I think it happened at McCormick Place, they thought this is the venue where we really need to make our voices heard. Um, the, the group would not exist if it weren't for the Chicago women in architecture because the, that's how the three founders met. But when they found out that the Chicago women in architecture were already doing something that was a lot less confrontational, right. uh, they were just going to uh, offer tour tours to delegates through, through Chicago. Uh, the group thought, no, we need to really make our, uh, we need to bring some key issues to the table here. Yeah. So they broke off formed this radical little faction and delivered their message with a lot of humor and wit and, and um, sort of expressive expressiveness that we really have not seen in architecture since. Yeah. I think. Yeah. There's a very like, there's a very punk uh, sort of like vibe and aesthetic to a lot of the images that come across. It's, it's very, um, it's very much sort of like uh, almost shock art, like not quite. It's, um, um, but there was there's something in those images that was like a, a total refusal and and but but they're always linked back to very specific real like ways in which um, um, women's oppression becomes manifest in architecture which was like it was very cool to see and, and the exhibition title kind of says it all it's what was uh, more than the sum of our body parts exactly thank you for mentioning that yeah. it was more than the sum of our body parts and it took place at the Randolph Street Gallery, which is now Intuit, the uh, yes. Center for Intuitive and um, Outsider Art, which is kind of fitting. For yeah, this absolutely. Way. Well, and I, I also, uh, Karyatids, too, is such a great name because uh, there's some famous Karyatids in Chicago. Uh, and and um, the, the, the way that the word is used in architecture is as a, a, a column that is, that is in the shape of, of a, a, a female figure. Um, and uh, they are used extensively at the Museum of Science and Industry, um, and there's some, some famous ones. And so, I think there's even like you know the what do you call them like the, with the cutout heads and, and the caryatids <laughs> yeah, um, in one of the images, which is very cool. It's very Chicago, but but also um, um, yeah, what a great uh, um, acronym yeah. also. <laughs> and certainly of its time too, because remember 1993, sort of peak postmodernism so a lot That's of interest right. in classical language in architecture and being playful with it so uh, even one of the um, one of the vignettes that they designed which was not featured in in that particular article but um, it was around wrapping around the gallery was something they called freeze time mm. and you know typically in a classical building you have sort of messages or important dates or facts um, sort yeah. of inscribed at the in the freeze running along the the roof line of a building. Um, well, they took that and they used it as a way to tell a feminist history of architecture, which was kind of novel yeah. um, at the time. And so at the in, at, in their archives, you can see the way that they 
the way that they place themselves within architecture history, I thought was pretty interesting and yeah. totally in the the vein of the the Karyatids. Yeah. And actually, even just to sorry to keep going no, on that, please. but um, they really owned that image of the Karyatids. Um, they have I've seen a lot of iterations of designs for the postcards and the graphic design for their material and they really take the karyatid very playfully yeah um for them the karyatid was about women's oppression yeah the the one um the the legend goes that the women of Kerry were um or uh, the women uh they, they were taken as prisoners with the greeks and sort of enslaved by supporting the the building's roof yeah um but but the way that Kerry interprets it in their drawings i think it's much more of a um sort of empowered sure. position where in the cover of their exhibition catalog, you sort of see these karyatids placed one beside the other in a way that they almost look like an army, sort of <laughs> the karyatids fight back. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And like, you know, that's, that's kind of, um, we, we were just talking, talking with Byron about sort of um, community organizing in Chicago and you know, it's like it's interesting to think about this metaphor. That's like a, it's an architectural motif, um, and it has this mythos uh, behind it. But like, really, the trick with with any kind of activism is in, in, the the twist of empowerment is recognizing that you do hold the whole thing up, right? That that's that the in in many ways it's a kind of burden, but you also have the power, which is to say, like I I could drop this also at any time. <laughs> um, exactly. Which is sort of and, and it's it's um, an interesting way to kind of. Of like um, re reappropriate that um, in the name of empowerment, yeah. And and you mentioned sort of some of the motivation um, for this group and uh, being this this large gathering of architects in the AAA convention, um, and and there was a, a letter to um, um, was Miss Maxman who was uh, um, with the head of the AIA at the time. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Susan Maxman. She was the first pre woman president of the AIA. Um, in 1992, she was elected. Yeah. And, yes. So it's it's interesting too that you know you, you would have like um, a, a feminist a feminist group being like, <laughs> you know, I we don't we don't care. We're, this is great that you're in leadership, but but there's some real concerns here that need to be addressed. Yeah, talk about a burden. I think <laughs> that often you know someone who's in that position of being the first woman enter enter your term. Yeah. Um, or any underrepresented group sure. um, often carries the burden to change things for the whole rest of that group or represent that group fully. And um, so it was interesting, you know, she, she, Susan Maxman, sort of, you know, I did oral histories with the founders of uh. Carrie, and, um, and I also did an oral history with Susan Maxman. It was nice because the Karyatids all sort of frame Susan as a, a bit of a villain figure, um, you know, <laughs> sure. that she she could really do something about it, but she didn't. I see. But Maxman herself sees the opportunity to change things for women by uh, leading by example, basically, to use the power structure, you know, to use her position within an established institution like the AIA um, to make incremental change yeah um, so there is correspondence between the two of them like you said um they we have that excerpt in the article that lists the demands which i i've had a lot of readers say that it really resonates for them today i mean the issues were this is a 25 year old letter but the issues are 
um, as relevant as ever yeah. today. And um, Susan did respond. She um, listed some of the initiatives that the AIA had thought about and some ways to that they might begin to address the, the issue. But she, today, in, in our interview, she did not um, recall this interaction between the two of them. I see. Um, but she, she's been celebrated for, you know, breaking the glass ceiling in a lot right. of ways, and I think that's... Um, yeah, and and it's I mean it's it's interesting to look back as sort of like um, activists in architecture who are kind of working in this space today. Um, you know, like you said, the issues that were brought up um, are st are still relevant. Um, and I actually have the the text here. I, I'll read it. Um, it says, D "Dear Miss Maxman, the following issues have been ignored by the AIA: the wage gap, the glass ceiling, family leave policies, gender bias in the tre in treatment on the job, sexual harassment in the workplace, family workplace issues, attrition rates." We challenge the AIA to formulate specific programs and policies to address these issues. <laughs> that, that's the text. Um, but, you know, th like, we, we have a lot of those demands now of the AIA, at least uh, in, in, in the architecture lobby and, and allied groups. Um, and, and I think reflecting on the history helps you think about the strategies and the tactics, because I think everyone absolutely shares the same end goal, right? Like, there, there's, there's no question that... Um, uh, um, Susan Maxman wanted these same things. Also, I I, I would have to assume, <laughs> and and but but it, it is a real question about how you get there, and and so I don't know. I it's, I appreciate this kind of research because it, it helps frame frame the question in a way that's that's really relevant to us now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and um, you know I'm I I'm still in touch with the the three leaders of the Karyatids, and they've all, um, you know, they would. You know they're happy to see the equity by design um, right. initiative that has been going on from the AI. I mean, the AI has really begun to take these issues up. It's but there is the larger question. There are still those moments where you know uh, the at the national convention. Oops, we forgot to include women in the keynote speakers. Right. Or you know there are still moments where we see uh, room for significant change because still women have. Uh, I guess the, the number of women in the AIA membership has doubled since 1993, but now that's that's still only 24%. So there's yeah. always room for improvement, but uh, yeah. but I think you you know we can see slightly you know slight movement. But I, I totally agree that looking back helps us plot the, the path forward. I mean, when I'm when we look at how carry, the Karyatids delivered their message, it's it seems so of its time, but it also seems like something that could really actually communicate to an audience today. Um, and I've thought about the implications of what would happen if we re-performed that, that uh, installation. I mean, just to give you an example, one of the installations was called Water Cooler Wisdom, If Only These Jugheads Could Talk. <laughs> this was an architecture exhibition. Yeah. And of course, there were no buildings anywhere in the gallery. Instead, this installation water cooler wisdom had a scene that were uh, a couple of wire figures with water coolers as heads light bulbs inside <laughs> standing around a board that says employee notices and all and audience members were invited to come into the gallery and actually write the moments that they felt that uh, they've experienced workplace harassment um, as an architect yeah. so I mean this is representing an aspect of architecture culture that is 
we talk about a lot, but it's so much so different when you see it represented as um, a sculpture or right. as enacted this way. Um, yeah, it's really brilliant because you know it's something that we talk a lot about in in the architecture lobby, right? Is is the the political agency of of architecture and, and buildings, um, and and my interpretation of it is always that the political agency like isn't the building, right? It's it's your work, it's your labor power. So, um, but 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 architects, you know, we we kind of need a, and and really any kind of like um, uh, immaterial worker, you know, we we sort of trade in cultural expression <laughs> it's our job <laughs> and so I think uh, it's it's how it's how our brains work so it's it's interesting to like when when you put something on a kind of pedestal literally right when you put something on display that is a, a cultural expression of like how how these issues manifest politically in the workplace um, it really uh, it, it's maybe not political in and of itself like uh, doing the work of politics but it does illuminate a sort of another path um, that that's that's more rich and concrete to my mind than you know sort of like th throwing something out there and hoping that it changes attitudes over you know wh however long yeah I mean uh, absolutely. I mean, talk about this one, too. Uh, we have one called Just Relax, This May Cause Some Discomfort. Yeah, describe what's happening in that image. <laughs> so this is an installation where they the um, Karyatids actually found a gynecological gurney that they could have donated and brought into the gallery. Instead of having uh, the typical you know, sanitary paper yeah. covering the gynecological gurney like you know many women are familiar with in the doctor's office, they actually printed the Family Medical Leave Act and had that on display in the gallery with yeah. two high heels put in the foot stirrups. And this was a chance to talk about the fact that uh, under the Family Medical Leave Act, uh, over 90% of architecture firms are ineligible for parental leave um, in the wow. U.S. And that is uh, still true today. And I can't tell you another uh, moment where an architecture exhibition displayed a piece of legislation and <laughs> definitely not in that way alongside yeah that. yeah architecture lobby uh has been cooking up something about labor law and and putting it on a wall in a gallery so people can stay tuned for that and i'm awesome. i'm happy to see that we're uh, um um I don't know, following in good footsteps. So yeah, yeah it's it's you know you, you mentioned that you've taken oral histories, and and I'm curious um, if if uh, some of the karyatids are still in Chicago and and around because I would love to have them on the show. <laughs> oh, absolutely! In fact, Carol Crandall, I hope she's listening. Um, she is a partner at Crandall Ritsu Architects in uh, in Chicago. She's still there. The other two founders are. Well, one is Sally Levine is uh, operating a practice in Cleveland in Shaker Heights, and Kay Janis is working for the federal government in Washington D.C. Um, but that's not to say that the members are not. Yeah, still in. many of the members will be um, easy to contact. We found a, a directory in the archives that we can easily look up. Oh, uh, but, fantastic! But, so hopefully this is just chapter one of the discussion. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. Well, um, um, we're almost out of time here. Um, we've got a couple minutes left. Um, is, is there is there anything else in the article that I missed that you want to talk about? Um, I think that what's just really nice to talk about is 
just that um, I, I don't know what I like to talk about are the, is the institutional history of architecture. I mean, yeah. there's a there are the history of buildings, and there's of course the great man myth, as Carrie put yeah. it in their exhibition, uh, the history of that of just the great figures. But we forget to talk about the way that. Uh, architects organize and support each other. Um, and this is a nice opportunity to reflect on the rank and file, the most disenfranchised workers. I mean, their rage came from the fact that in 1993, this was, uh, there was a, a wave of layoffs and disproportionately women were the ones yeah. laid off in the lower positions, more disposable roles. Um, so they felt this acutely. And, um, and if it weren't for the Chicago Women in Architecture, which is actually the longest continuously running organization of women architects in the country, yeah. then this sort of moment of speech, you know, this sort of moment of um, coagulation wouldn't, wouldn't have happened because they wouldn't have known each other and felt safe, sort of um, found a break from their isolation in, yeah. in their offices. So I just like to reflect on that. And I think that, you know, the work that you guys do in talking about the spirit of activism, that this is a good match for that. Yeah. So, well, thank you. Thank you very much. It. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and it's it's really it's it's excellent to have these sorts of histories. They're, they're really great food for thought and and always remind you that um, you're not you're not you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. <laughs> exactly. And uh, um, and and you can forge on and, and um, you're operating in a, a great tradition. So uh, thank you so much. And um, we'll ha you. I'm sure we'll have you on the show again uh, some other time. And um, yeah, folks can fi find the full article on the Chicago Architecture Biennial blog. And while we're talking about the Architecture Biennial, I should mention that um, Buildings on Air is cooking up a Chicago Architecture Biennial special um, in mid-September. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for that um, on uh, Lumpen Radio um, uh, social media and Buildings on Air social media. Um, and Sarah, thank you so much again, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Thank you, Kiefer. Yeah, Buildings on Air will be back in just a few minutes. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn. And uh, this is the favorite segment of Buildings on Air, the most fun um, I have as the host. Uh, it's the mailbag, where we answer your listener questions about architecture and buildings. Um, and our usual mailbag correspondents, who, um, in spite of all uh, commitments that they have, have made it to every single episode of Buildings on Air, and Louis and Craig Reschke, are um, abroad uh, this week. So uh, they're, they're being replaced um, by ably by friend of the show, uh, Skylar Mann. How's it going? Just fine. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for um, stepping in at the last minute. And um, we've got some questions about buildings. So uh, let's, let's get into it. Let's um, hear it. So um, first, uh, all right, I, always, I never know which question to start with. Um, uh, well, I'll, I'll revisit a question that seems to pop up fairly frequently. And we've seen variations on this theme. Sure. which is, yeah. can I use my wall AC unit inside? I bought a new 12,000 BTU AC unit for my room, but I have to wait until next <laughs> week to make a hole in the wall to place it there. And the heat down here in Florida is making me impatient. Is it safe to keep it inside for a couple of days? The last time we got this question... Um, I was here. Yeah, you were present. The last time, yeah. And it was yeah. about uh, putting <clears throat> an air conditioner on a chair, um, which is... Yeah. Th it's the same question, but I think we, uh, we owe it to um, listeners as a PSA <laughs> to revisit right. it and remind them that um yeah yeah um 
So the question at the end was, is it safe? Yes. It's perfectly safe. <laughs> yeah, it's, right. It, it, will, it will do no harm. Only, uh, only except, to your electric bill. Yeah, it will <laughs> yeah, run your, your bill and uh, probably cause some condensation that you're going to need to manage. But it's not going to do anything for you. Uh, the, the function of the machine is to move heat from one side of, of the device to the other side. Yeah. And as long as both sides are inside your apartment, uh, yeah, you're you'd mo- be better off with a box fan just pushing heat in a, in a circle. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Well, we've got that PSA out of, <laughs> out of the way. Um, and, um, yeah, so, so next question. Um, I, I brought my dryer to a new apartment, and the outlet in the wall accepts three-prong plugs. My dryer has a four-prong plug. Could I wire in a new three-prong plug by removing the back plate of the dryer? Do they, they do sell adapter cords, but they're anywhere from $50 to $100. What is a solution here? Yeah, that's a, that's a really frightening prospect. <laughs> yes. Tell uh, us why. <laughs> uh, rule of thumb in, in electrical, like in household electricity, is if the, uh, if the male end of the, of the cord on the appliance does not fit into the female outlet on the wall, it means they are incompatible. Yes. And they are not meant to go together. This is by design, not by accident. Yeah. Yeah, they they put that fourth one on there just so you wouldn't be able to put it in the wall. Right. And I always forget because if it's um, the voltage, because I think it's 220 volts, so oftentimes uh, uh, yeah. significant household appliances and uh, other equipment will run off the higher voltage. Um, unless you unless you understand phasing and you can make sure that this device is designed to work on both single phase and two phase. Yeah. And you are trained to to rewire appliances. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. And and this is yeah, um, and this is also why this adapter cord costs so much money is because it is uh, doing <laughs> yeah. doing work. That's right. Yeah. It's it's protecting you. Yeah. Another question, um, uh, can can you add a room to a brick home? Which I assume means, uh, like, what do you have to go to to punch a hole through a, a brick wall mm. um, is, mm-hmm. is what I assume the intent of the question is because um, you can definitely add something on a, a building onto the side of another building. An addition. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can certainly, yeah, add additions to any type of material. Yeah. Um, and if the question is about, uh, having like a brick wall on the inside of your home. Yeah. That's fine. You you need to uh, do some work wherever the, the envelope hits the wall. Yeah. So if you, where the walls and the roof touch that, that brick, you're going to need to make some kind of a thermal and moisture break. Yeah. And wherever you put an opening in, even if you weren't putting a room on, if you're adding a new door or window, you've got to do some work to support the weight of yeah. the, the masonry above the opening. Right. Yeah, you have to get a, a lintel. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't remember if this is like a bit of architecture minutia that we've covered in Mailbag before, but like bricks are really interesting. And, and I was I was thinking about lintel, like lintels, steel lintels um, in brick openings the other day, right? Because it's, it's, these things are just like little L-shaped pieces of steel. It's not even right. very thick steel. And they sit above um, every window that doesn't have like an arch shape or something. 
um, every door opening as well. And I was like, how can how can that little um, piece of steel like hold up all of the brick above it? And the answer is it isn't. <laughs> um, which I thought, uh, which which uh, yeah, and so it's not. It's not. Which is really because brick is self corbeling. So because of right. the way in which you lay the brick, um, um, depending on the bond. Depending on the bond, yeah. Uh, and the bond is just uh, the pattern of brick. Um, the weight is um, always transferring out to the sides. So that lintel is only, um, uh, if you can imagine in your head, supporting a triangle of brick among its, uh, uh, above it. So if you drew um, 45 degree lines basically from the corners of your window uh, upwards, uh, that mm-hmm. triangle is the only bit that that lintel is supporting, which is how this works. I think. If I understand it correctly, it's roughly an equilateral triangle. Yeah, that's for, right. To, yeah, to oh, yes, yeah, so 45 degrees is not yeah, <laughs> necessarily 60, correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Approximately. Yeah. That's uh, how much can't support itself. Yeah. It's very fat, but it's, it's super interesting. Um, and it's also, uh, you know, you can think about it like this way, too. You could remove those bricks entirely, and this is kind of the reason why an arch works. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, um, if, if, you're think, if you're listening to Buildings on Air right now and you're an architect who is looking to save some money, <laughs> perhaps this is a way and, and add some style to your building. If you're a DIYer, um, you know, I, I don't recommend trying to make a brick arch on your own. Um, but there you go. And Some fun facts for you. Maybe not so fun. <laughs> and I think we're also not advocating to just go around removing the bricks from existing walls <laughs> right. above the opening. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, next question here. Um, actually, I have a question from you that we didn't get to last month. So I'm oh, going hey. to repose the question to oh, no. yourself. Am I answer really, myself? Yeah, in, in a weird meta twist. Um, so y- you wrote uh, in, into the show that um, you had a client that posted um, some design development plans of a new grade school to YouTube, um, and they were publicly searchable with uh, questions and comments and bubbles and arrows um, Im- imposed on the plans. Um, and you asked if there were any legal or contractual concerns um, and if the client had a right to publicly reveal in-progress documents in the design process? Yeah. Um, it's a good question. And I, I did some research. Um, if, if you don't want to answer your own question. <laughs> I, I'm happy to come back to it. But I, first, I'd love to know what you found out. Yeah. So um, what I found out was I basically just looked at the American Institute of Architects standard contract. And so what they said was that um, the owner, uh, there's explicitly in the contract, the owner can only use the instruments of service, which are the drawings and any words that the architects provides um, for building, right, for construction, um, and that the architect um, um, retains all of the rights um, around everything else. So um, this is a kind of, if if assuming that an AIA contract was, I don't know, standard in this instance, mm-hmm. then yeah, then the, the, there might be a, a reason for a dispute. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I did ask about this a bit. Uh, first of all, I talked to a coworker uh, who, as I was describing this situation, hadn't seen the email with the link to the YouTube video yet and I didn't realize I was talking about something that had just happened that morning. Yeah. And he mostly agreed with me that this is not how we're supposed to be communicating. Yeah. Um, 
And Which I, is why, like, yeah, why? What's what? What would be the issue? Like, what? What? Why? Why do you feel like this? Uh, yeah. So less I, than ideal. So I see, kind of where the client comes from. That we have scheduled meetings, and they have feedback for us before the next scheduled meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and rather than simply using correspondence to try to describe their comments, yeah, they want to show us on the plan, what they're thinking about and demonstrate their concerns. Mm -hmm. A lot of it had to do with controlling access to different uh, building occupants. Um, Yeah, mostly security. Right, I see. So I I understand why they might say, they see this as a better way to communicate these things back to us than just writing. Yeah. Um, But I think it's really important uh, that we set out in a in a contract, the terms of of how we how we manage that. There's a reason that you have a a certain frequency of face to face meetings, mm-hmm. and you handle everything else through correspondence that is recorded, and we have these messages at the bottom of the email saying, "Is if you are not the intended recipient of this, please notify us and delete this." And yeah, you know, don't tell your friends. Yeah, but. Um, it's. I think it's a, a dangerous precedent when you just allow the the client to start uh, sending feedback to you, however they think is convenient, without taking any uh, precautions about who else this information might be going to. Especially since their comments were about security, <laughs> and so they're publishing this online. Sure. Yeah. I mean, unless you knew how to search for it, you're probably never going to find this this short video. Mm. But if they keep doing this, there's going to become a pretty sizable body of information about the design process. Yeah. And that was one of my other questions um, is who uh, is, is it okay for the, the client to reveal the process? Yeah. Yeah. I don't Do we have any right to control? I didn't find anything in in the contracts necessarily, you know, but mm-hmm. I think it is, you know, there there's always this negotiation of of sort of like um like expertise and like why you hire an architect. And we talk about that in the mailbag um quite yeah, a yeah. bit. So I'm I'm glad to keep this theme going. But, you know, um like we're more than just a stamp architect. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the that's the world's worst call to action like in in sob story this is the the least sad sob story we're more than just a stamp <laughs> and i just need to yeah. jump in here and say in fact when i went to the buildings department of the city of chicago the only thing they asked me is if my plans were stamped Kiefer. so in, in fact i'm not sure that's that's true yeah, yeah right <laughs> yeah yeah the call the call is needed um, and thank you for backing us up <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah uh the other thing uh, that when i did ask about whether whether it was up to us or up to the the client how we how we handle that yeah um the answer i received was that at least in this case the the terms of this contract are that the documents that we produce belong to the client i see yeah and so at least on my team i think the reading is that they they have the right to use those uh those instruments for yeah. far more purposes than simply construction. Yeah. 
Then that that makes sense to me. Uh, moving off the topic of contracts, <laughs> as 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 love as we, as much as we love to get nerdy here on buildings on air, um, here's a, here's an interesting question, a uh, very valid concern. Could I damage my floorboards by skipping with a jump rope uh, on them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my flatmate is convinced the floorboards are getting looser across the whole uh, living room, not just in the one spot I skip. I think he might be right. A- about the floorboards, that is, but would be surprised if a little bit of skipping in one spot could loosen so many across the entire room. The question is, is he crazy or am I? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's hard to believe the jump rope. I'm, I'm picturing either a rope or plastic. Yeah. Jump rope is going to do serious damage. <laughs> yes, yeah, assuming that the wood floors are in good condition. But perhaps beforehand. the jumping up and down. It's the jumping. Yeah, <laughs> it's the jumping up and down on the. Uh, on the, sounds like the same spot. Yeah. If you're going to jump up and down, maybe move around. Yeah. Well, the, he said it was across the whole room, and and so I th- I think probably both of these people are crazy. Um. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's going to be hard unless. Unless you find the the resonant yeah. frequency of the floor to really get you, those boards loose, but yeah. there there's there's probably definitely some sort of motion in the floor that's contributing to things loosening. And buildings get old, um, but one thing too, and and you'll see this in um, uh, uh, drywall also, is that uh, sometimes people expediently use nails instead of screws. And also, we were talking about this the other day a little bit. Yeah. The, the machine screw is is like a much more recent invention than the nail. So you know oh, yeah. the the difference being that um, you know a nail holds things together. You know. Um, if, yeah, from side to side movement, uh, but you know you can pull it out um, if you can overcome the force of the friction. But a screw has teeth, right? So um, if there's motion there, you can you can pull out a nail much easier than you can a screw. That's right. That was a lot of words to make a very simple point. Yeah, depending <laughs> on depending on the construction of your floor. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, why not jump outside. Why not jump outside? <laughs> that is the official buildings on air uh, <laughs> advice that we are proffering. Why not jump outside? Or in you know if you're in Chicago, yeah, maybe go to the back porch. Yeah, because our our code requires uh, <laughs> porch floors to be two and a half times uh, stronger than your indoor yeah. floors. And then you can uh, disturb all of your neighbors uh, who you share your porch with rather than just your flatmate. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go to the porch. Yeah. yeah. Maybe you can get them to move out. Um, yeah. So here, here's another one. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah. How much can you trim off the bottom of an interior door? Um uh, update. So, so um, the standard door height is 80 inches. I can no longer find a 78 inch door height, and the door opening needs to be 77 and a half inches. So that's two and a half inches I need to trim off of a door. Um, can one remove that much from a door? Hmm. Hmm. Um. Depends on the door. It does. Yeah. <laughs> really. Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you have to look at the the thickness of that bottom rail if yeah. it's like a panel door. Yeah. Uh if it's a like a corridor, meaning it just look like looks like it has a veneer over the face, may or may not be hollow. You can probably cut that about as far up as you want. Yeah. 
And it's it's it should be noted for all for all those uh, DIYers who are listening that doors are nothing to trifle with. Like uh, they're very complicated, like pieces of um, equipment <laughs> almost. You know, like it, it's one of the more um, like complex, like simple pieces of a building that we have to deal with. There's pages and pages of of uh, drawings that are dedicated um, to uh, just the doors in a building um, because you have hinges and there's so many different hinge types and if you think about opening in versus opening out and if the knob is on the left side versus the right side and then when you enter uh, when mass manufacturing enters into the equation right then all of a sudden you're trying to line up all of these like holes and slots um, with the hardware and the hinges and the door frame and the the structure around it and it it can become um, a really time-consuming thing um so so if and and really uh, all that's to say if you're trying to redo the doors in your home um then it's really a matter of being very diligent about not just measuring twice but three and four and five times oh yeah um you've hung a door oh i've hung a door Yeah, yeah yeah Hanging a door gives me great respect for people who are very good at it. Yeah, it's it's well, it's just, yeah, because like, what's involved in hanging a door? It's, oh, you're you've got a level or probably two levels because you're trying to get that thing plumb so that it not only hangs and swings yeah. correctly without damaging the frame, but also doesn't fall open. Doesn't you know? If anything, maybe you're you're trying to hang it so that it wants yeah. to swing shut a little. Yeah. Um. And there's all kinds of other hardware too. I'm jumping to a, a conclusion here that if this is a 77 and a half inch <laughs> door frame, yeah, uh, it's probably inside a home. Yes, and uh, you're not concerned about like fire separations. You probably don't have like a sweep on the bottom. Yeah, but yeah, many doors. There, there are so many other uh, things involved. So many technologies. Yeah. Yeah, the, you might almost be better off just making the opening taller. <laughs> right, that's true. Uh, but then that opens all kinds of other concerns <laughs> about right. the header of the door. Um, buildings on air, opening doors to your world of do- door thinking. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, so next question um, on that bombshell. Um, and, and I think this is like, this is a very broad question. It's a very sort of like innocent but important question. What is green building and why must we concentrate on it? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, why do people concentrate on it? How? And why should we? And uh, green building is so political now. Yeah. Well, for what green building is just a, a tagline for buildings that are sustainable, ostensibly. That's, um, which pe- people yeah. use those interchangeably. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Sustainability has become politicized, which is crazy. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it, it's pretty hard to assume when you're talking about it that people simply just think that it means a practice that can be sustained. Mm, yeah. It, it rarely only means that now. So uh, you have to figure people are talking about um, new technologies or alternative practices. Yeah. Potentially uh, minimizing uh, material, uh, like new material investment and some type of recycling or reuse. Yeah. Reusing materials is very good. Or energy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think 
It's interesting too, you mentioned it's political and I, I think maybe you're uh, alluding to some of the various schemes that um, uh, architects are now um, either required to or voluntarily um, um, submit to um, to measure the environmental performance of a building. Yeah, there's that, but there's also even, uh, if you look at more than 10 years ago, uh -huh. uh, when the, the U.S. Green Building Council had already been in existence for years, had uh -huh. established the original uh, LEED certification process. Yeah. But many, many architects were very skeptical, primarily because they weren't convinced that their clients were interested. Right. Um, that it wouldn't increase their business. Yeah. So it became political very early. Right. In, in terms of only doing it if you saw it as a, a net advantage for you. Right. And then people started making stronger business cases uh, especially in terms of general health of the occupants of the building. Hmm. Um, yeah. Well, and now it's almost flip-flopped, right, from oh, yeah. from that, where, you know, you can literally, like, buy, buy lead credits. And, That's and, right. Um, now people have, have figured out how to game it yeah. so effectively. I mean, it's just a series of uh, points you're checking off. Right. And, uh, you know, greenwashing is actually a pretty broadly used term now for people who know how to take – an otherwise conventional structure and simply apply something to to look sustainable yeah, yeah. Um, not necessarily testing for for effectiveness right. but yeah, and you know it's interesting because we talk often too, and in, in the mailbag about kind of data and the role of like mm -hmm. uh, technology and in, in, in helping architects make determinations like this. But with sustainability in particular, it's so hard because there's so many like ways to measure it and like um, uh, the oh, outcomes, yeah. and it's when and and you want to you want to sort of dictate that like uh, building should be environmentally sustainable. Like that seems like a very reasonable thing to do, like given what we know about climate change and all of these other things. But there's a difficulty in like, okay, if you start to regulate it by like, how do you do that? And what other things are being precluded? And like how, what's being left off the table? And what loopholes are you sort of creating um, that, that might run counter to your ends? Um, in, in fact, it's, it's a really hard problem, right? There are, there's so many ways to, to argue that, yeah. that something complies with, with green building design or sustainability. Right. There's room for virtually everyone to make that case that I don't want to, you know, point out too many people, um, who claim to be and may or may not be, but I will, I will say anytime I hear or see an ad for the vinyl industry mm. claiming that vinyl is a sustainable building product, right. I think that's. The, the about as far as you can stretch that claim, yeah. Considering it, it breaks down and has uh, so many chemicals, off-gassing, and it and it's one of the most expensive products to use in a building because you have to replace it so much more frequently than anything else. Right, right, right. Which is ostensibly why it's more sustainable, right? Is because it lasts longer than wood, um, and but you know, or, or at least lasts longer, um, uh, requiring less maintenance, and uh, you know, but but right, yeah. But the difference is, and, and that's where these things become really difficult. And um, you know, to be fair, a lot of these. Um, 
sort of accreditation schemes are starting to take like a, a longer view and 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 more rigorously um, fold total life uh, cycle into um, the calculations mm-hmm. because you know obviously like trees are a renewable resource and um, vinyl is is not it's plastic right yeah yeah um, obviously the in order to be taken seriously the the organizations that that manage these standards have to continually pursue a, some better way of, of measuring and, and making that distinction. But uh, they're always uh, in a constant fight against yeah. people who feel they have something to lose. Right. Uh, okay, last question. Um, I feel obligated to answer this one because it was tweeted at us like a month ago. Um, and Brian Ringley uh, <laughs> wanted to ask the mailbag, um, where do babies come from asking for a friend? <laughs> 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 I think I think uh, before you get there, uh, I think that's outside of our area of expertise. It we is. appreciate and respect expertise uh, um, here on the show, and um, that is not ours. <laughs> no, yeah, uh, I would say ours is a... a considerably different area of conception yeah i guess that's yeah and i i I also in retrospect guess that it doesn't take an expert to know where babies come from (laughs) i take back what i said um trace trace it back to the source yeah right (laughs) (laughs) okay uh well that's been buildings on air skylar thanks for filling in um on the mailbag and um yeah. Th- Jamie, thanks so much for, for uh, being the producer to make things happen. That's what I'm here for. And don't forget two episodes of Buildings on Air next month, one for the Chicago Biennial and then one the second week. Yes. The second week of September, not the first week, the second week of September. Yeah. It's going to be a Buildings on Air week. It is. It's going to be um, spectacular in every sense of the word. Can't wait. Yeah. Right. Thanks for listening, y'all. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at... B-L-D-G-S on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes. 